And uh, the first thing that will be very helpful for you this evening is to turn to the Bible passage that Jody read before, 1 Peter, which is page 1219 in the church Bibles. You'll, you'll very definitely need to have that open in front of you this evening. It's not a particularly easy passage. Uh, and the other thing which is dotted around the church which you might find helpful are these sort of cream-coloured sheets uh, so that if you're getting a little bit lost halfway through, hopefully you can uh, pick up. But another thing that will be very helpful is if we ask for God's help. So as we sit together, let me pray for us. You, O Christ, are all I want. More than all in you I find. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are ever sufficient for our needs in this world and the next. And we pray that you would make yourself clear through your written word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might honour you in the coming week. For your name's sake. Amen. Well, a few years back, uh, a Saturday evening TV programme included a, uh, a slot called uh, Face Your Fears. And members of the general public had to enter their very own room 101, a sort of glass-panelled enclosure filled with whatever they found most difficult. And there were the usual suspects of snakes and spiders and rats. But the most bizarre that I remember uh, was buttons. Uh, one evening, a poor, trembling, button-phobic was led into the glass room. Uh, and she was doing fine uh, until she suddenly caught sight of a button with accompanying thread. A button with a thread. It was a terrifying sight that sadly sent the poor woman over the edge. Actually, phobias of, of one kind or another are surprisingly common. Indeed, our own vicar suffers from lepidopterophobia, the fear of butterflies. So my wife's suggestion that Paul should take his children to the butterfly house near Dinnington, well, it wasn't the greatest. Uh, apparently, if he's in an enclosed space with either moths or butterflies, he manages his fear by doing one of only two things. It's either departure or death. <laughs> departure for him or death the butterfly, so he's probably not the most popular visitor to a butterfly house. Well, the second half of 1 Peter 3 offers instruction on fear management of a much more serious nature than even butterflies. Uh, it's clear if you read through Peter's letter that his first readers were facing opposition from an increasingly hostile culture. And Peter's persistent counsel throughout this book is that even in the midst of the world's opposition, his readers are to live lives that commend the gospel. So, back in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says these key words, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This good life that Peter commends demonstrates the reality, the integrity, the credibility of the gospel message. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, Fundamentally, this good life is a recognition of the divine ordering of human relationships in civil governments, in the workplace, and in marriage relationships. And, and so as you come to verse 8 of chapter 3, Peter makes some concluding comments before he turns 
to face directly the world's opposition. Uh, he's finally in verse 8, he's a reminder that his readers face the world's opposition in the context of community and in the light of eternity. In other words, whether they face the opposition of unbelieving rulers or unbelieving employers or unbelieving husbands, Peter's readers do not face such opposition either alone or forever. You see, there is verse 8, or rather there should be, the, the united, the, the sympathetic and loving community of believers that strengthens you to face opposition. And whilst there may be evil and insult now, there will be, verses 9 to 12, good days and blessing in the future. And yet the reality is that now, in this life, in this world, there will be times when Christians will be unpopular, they will be marginalised, they will be scorned, belittled, opposed, even persecuted. Because as Peter puts it for the second time in verse 21, sorry, verse 9 of chapter 3, because to this you were called... To this you were called if you are a Christian. And so as Peter encourages his readers to face their fears, he does so by pointing them to the Lordship of Christ, to the hope of the Gospel, to the value of unjust suffering, and to the unshakable victory of Christ's resurrection. So the first thing comes in verses 13 to 15, and it's this. Don't fear because Christ is Lord. Don't fear because Christ is Lord. Who is going to harm you, Peter writes, if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, or better, I think, do not have any fear of them. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. See, Peter seems to suggest that suffering for doing good, in other words, suffering for living the Christian life, is unusual but not unexpected. That it's unpleasant, but it's not really unwelcome. Why? Well, because... The suffering for the gospel is actually accompanied by blessing, verse 14. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Now, of course, if you're anything like me, you'll find it very hard to believe that suffering for the gospel can actually be accompanied by blessing. If I'm honest, for me, even the mildest opposition and suffering for the sake of the gospel is a source of great discouragement and anxiety, not blessing. And so quite how I would cope in the face of the kind of intense opposition that many Christian brothers and sisters are facing throughout the world this day, I do not know. But I guess if I don't face minor opposition rightly, I will never face major hostility at all. You see, Peter says that whatever opposition or hostility you face as a Christian, don't fear because Christ is Lord. The antidote to wrong fear is a right reverence. Don't fear but, verse 15, set apart Christ as Lord. I suspect that for, for many of us who call ourselves Christians, our discipleship problems 
many of our discipleship problems stem from an inadequate understanding of who Jesus is. Our God is invariably too small. And yet the reality is, verse 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Christ is truly Lord. So the world can hold no ultimate fear for the believer. I've been recently reading an account of Christian martyrs from the 20th century and beyond and one chapter deals with the communist persecution of Christians in North Korea that intensified after the Soviet division of the country in 1948. And amongst many of the thousands that suffered for their faith in that country was one Pastor Im. Uh, he, with other Christian pastors, was threatened by the communists if he did not insert Marxist propaganda into his sermons. And echoing Jesus' words from Luke 12, he refused and said, You may destroy my body, but you cannot destroy my soul. Now, his communist persecutors then threatened his family. If you do not care for yourself, then think of your family. They will be killed also. And he hesitated. And then he said, I would rather have my wife and babies die by your gun and know that they and I stood faithful than to betray my Lord and save them. And he was taken away and kept in a dark prison cell for two months with the most basic of provisions and he never ever saw his family again. Do you and I really have anything to fear from a colleague's mockery or the put-down of an unbelieving family member or the hostility of a friend or teacher or lecturer? Do we really have anything to fear? And what if, as seems increasingly likely, in the pseudo-tolerance of our society... People try to prevent Christians from commending the Christ of the Scriptures. What if legislation is passed that commands Christians to accept what the Bible forbids? If we dissent, will we have anything to fear then? Well, not, Peter says, if we set apart Christ as Lord before whom one day every knee will bow. Do not fear, because Christ is Lord. Well, secondly, be prepared to speak, because we have a certain hope in the Gospel. End of verse 15 and to 16. Be prepared to speak, because we have a certain hope in the Gospel. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Peter says, always be prepared. You don't always need to say something, but you do always need to be ready to say something. 
so that when the moment comes, you do actually open your mouth and speak. See, a well-placed word, like a well-placed ball, can strike the back of the net with great effect. See, why is it that footballers spend hours and hours practicing goal-mouth set pieces? It's not because that's all that the match consists of, but because they need to be ready to take the opportunities when they come. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. See, sometimes less is more. You don't need to be conversational polyfiller for Jesus. You know, artificially twisting every conversation around to talk about the blood of the Lamb. But you do need to be prepared to say something when you're asked. Why? Because fundamentally, the Christian has got something that's worth hearing. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, when we think of hope, we think of vague uncertainty. The FA hope that the new Wembley Stadium will be ready. The British hope that they will win gold at the Winter Olympics. The congregation hope that the sermon will be short. Because when the Bible speaks of hope... It means some future occurrence that is certain. So this letter begins with the great acclamation, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Certain. If you are a Christian here this evening, even opposition to the gospel can provide an opportunity to speak for the gospel. And you need to speak because you've got something that's worth listening to. Now it's true that we need to be gentle, verse 15. You can win the battle but lose the war. You can win the argument but you can lose the person. And not only do we need to be gentle, we also need to be godly, verse 16. We need to keep a clear conscience before God so that we don't discredit the gospel through the hypocrisy of compromised lives. But having said that, there are times when we just need to speak. Why? Because the hope of the gospel means that Christians have something that is worth listening to. So there's the family gathering. And you get stuck with your least sympathetic anti-Christian relative. Now for him all religions are, are just the same. They're just dangerous. They deceive people. They cause trouble. And then out of the blue he asks you a question. So why do you bother with this Christianity business? Are you surprised or prepared? Well, there's that colleague at work, you know, the one who never seems to have a good word to say about Christianity. Or the teacher or parents who's always moaning about the God slot in the school assembly. Or the doctor who's continually critical of Christian lobbying in healthcare. And yet suddenly you're out of the crowd and there's a question. 
So you really think that all this Jesus stuff is true, do you? What do you say? Nothing? Or something? Depends whether you're prepared, doesn't it? Be prepared to speak because we have a certain hope in the gospel. Thirdly, do good because there is value in suffering unjustly for the gospel, verses 17 to 20. Do good because there is value in suffering unjustly for the gospel. Now, here is a bit where you actually need to hang on to your seats. In its entirety, the Bible is clear. But there are some bits that are deep. And this is a deep bit. (laughs) Now, if you take the easier bit first in verse 17, Peter says, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Easier to understand, not so easy to live. See, if you're suffering for doing evil... Well, you can hardly complain, can you? If you get a hard time in the office or at school or with your family or with your neighbours because whatever your Christian profession, you're an irritating, self-important and arrogant hypocrite. Well, if you get a hard time, it's just what you deserve, isn't it? But if you suffer for doing good, you get a hard time for living well as a Christian. Peter says... It is better. Now, I don't know about you, but I just don't believe that. So the question you want to ask is, how? How is it better? How is it better if you suffer for doing good? Well, Peter says that you can learn how it's better if you look at two examples. There is the example of Jesus in verse 18, and then there is the example of Noah in verses 19 to 20. So Christ's example first. Now, verse 18 is an explanation... of verse 17. See how the verse begins? Verse 18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You see, Christ's unjust suffering brought people to God. That's why it was better. That's what Peter has been saying throughout his letter. Living God's way commends the gospel. It demonstrates that it's real and true and credible. Now, of course, there is a big difference. Christ's unjust suffering not only commends God's salvation before an unjust world, Christ's unjust suffering uniquely secured God's salvation for an unjust world. If you trust that Jesus Christ died for you, Christ's death really does bring you to God. But even if Jesus' death is more than an example, much more than an example. It is never less. And Peter says, do good because there is value in unjust suffering for the gospel in that it brings people to God. Well, then you get Peter's second example, the example of Noah, verses 19 to 20. Christ was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now it's getting a bit trickier. So what does Peter mean? 
Well, he seems to be saying that Christ did something else as well as suffering unjustly. So what is it? Well, Peter says that through the Spirit, Christ preached to those who are in prison. Meaning who exactly? Who are the spirits in prison and when exactly did Christ preach to them? Well, if you read on, which is always advisable, verse 20, Peter seems to give the answer. You see, the spirits in prison are, verse 20, those who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In other words, through the Spirit, Christ preached through Noah to those who, because they were disobedient then, when the ark was being built, are prisoners now. Do you get that? Through the Spirit, Christ preached through Noah to those who, because they were disobedient then, when Noah was building the ark, are prisoners now. You see, Noah was, as Peter puts it in his second letter, a preacher of righteousness. And through Noah, the preacher, Christ, the great preacher, spoke. Now, Peter's already made it clear earlier on in this letter that the Spirit of Christ has been active throughout history. So in chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, we learn how the prophets of long ago searched with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So, here too. Peter speaks of the Christ who in the Spirit went and preached to those who were disobedient in the past and who are therefore now in prison. It is a condensed argument, but I think what Peter is saying is that we can learn from Noah's example that it can be a great encouragement of the value of suffering unjustly for the gospel. You see, Noah suffered unjustly in the midst of a hostile and unbelieving world, just as Peter's readers were doing, and we might too. But Noah's unjust suffering testified to the reality of God's salvation and brought his believing family to God. Eight in all were saved. The point is this, do good because there is value in living God's way and suffering for the sake of the gospel. I mentioned Pastor Im before, this Korean pastor who suffered very greatly for the gospel. His story didn't actually end in the darkened prison cell where he was incarcerated by the communists. In September 1950, the United Nations troops entered South Korea to try and liberate it from the aggressive expansion of the North Korean communists. Tragically, as the United Nations came in, this imprisoned pastor was wrongly identified as a communist himself. And UN soldiers refused to believe that he was a Christian pastor. Now, the book I've been reading puts it like this. Accepting the situation as God's will, he began witnessing to the communist prisoners. And many were converted. Months later, American missionaries who stayed in Korea as chaplains heard about the prison camp preacher and investigated. 
They obtained permission for him to organize evangelistic services in prison camps all over South Korea. And by the summer of 1951, thousands had accepted Christ. Upwards of 12,000 were rising each morning for the dawn prayer meetings. How extraordinary. Don't fear because Christ is Lord. Be prepared to speak because we have a certain hope in the gospel and do good because there is value in suffering unjustly for the gospel. Well, fourthly and finally, remember the resurrection hope in your baptism. Remember the resurrection hope in your baptism. Verses 21 to 22. Sometimes you have to work hard when you're studying the Bible and this is one of those evenings, so I'm afraid it's not nice warm cuddlies for the last couple of verses you've got to hang in there Peter draws a parallel between the flood during the time of Noah and Christian baptism in verse 21 this water verse 21, the water of the flood symbolises baptism that saves you now again you have to ask what is Peter saying in these highly condensed verses Well, he seems to be reminding his readers, these suffering believers, of the significance of the resurrection hope that God makes real before our eyes in baptism. That's what he seems to be doing. He seems to be reminding these suffering believers of the significance of the resurrection hope that God makes real before our eyes in baptism. Now, we tend to think about baptism as something we do for God. But in the Bible, it is also something that God does for us. As one might have put it, baptism serves our confession before other people. It shows other people that I follow Jesus. But baptism also serves our faith before God. In other words, baptism is not just something that I do in response to the gospel. Baptism is actually God's gift to me, whereby my faith in the gospel is strengthened. So here Peter is saying that God makes the resurrection hope of the gospel real before our eyes in baptism. Now there is nothing magical at all in the act of baptism, as if some sort of external ritual itself can achieve anything. So, verse 21, it's not the removal of dirt from the body. What matters is faith in the gospel word about the resurrection and final vindication of Christ. But God takes that gospel word and he makes it real, he makes it visible and tangible in the gospel sign of baptism. That seems to be what Peter means in verse 21 when he speaks about the pledge, or I think better, the appeal of a good conscience towards God. Now, forgive me, it's not very often that I would quote from the pulpit John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, but he actually puts it brilliantly. And as I'm not going to quote in French, but an English translation, I think you should follow it. Calvin puts it like this, God uses means and instruments which he himself sees to be expedient. He feeds our bodies through bread and other foods. In like manner, he nourishes faith spiritually through the sacraments. Now, 
sacrament, by sacrament, Calvin simply means the signs of the gospel. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. So Calvin's saying that just as God feeds us materially through our food, he nourishes us spiritually through the sacraments, whose one function is to set his promises before our eyes to be looked upon. Indeed, to be guarantees of them to us. Now, our confidence ought not to be in the sacraments, nor the glory of God be transferred to them. Rather, laying aside all things, both our faith and our confession ought to rise up to him, who is the author of sacraments and of all things. See, the glorious rediscovery of the Reformation was that we are saved, we are put right with God by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that nothing that we can do contributes in any way to our forgiveness. Baptising someone does not make them a Christian any more than taking communion keeps people Christian. Nevertheless, that does not mean that baptism and communion are unimportant, which is, I think, the conclusion that many Christians today have drawn. So when we did a congregation survey here last year, my biggest surprise was just how many people who profess faith in Jesus have not been baptised. Now the Bible actually says if you're a Christian and you've not been baptised, you're being disobedient. That's not actually what Peter is talking about here. Peter's saying that in the midst of suffering and opposition for the gospel, he says, remember the resurrection hope of your baptism. Why? Because in baptism, God makes the reality of the resurrection hope real before our eyes. So again, Calvin puts it like this, as often as we fall away, we ought to recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. Have you never wondered why, when you see a baptism here on a Sunday evening, if you've seen one, have you never wondered why something deep within your soul is stirred? Have you never wondered? To be buried with Christ in his death and raised within him in his resurrection. Is there anything more extraordinarily wonderful than that? For you see, God makes real before your eyes the resurrection hope that is yours in the gospel. What an amazing encouragement Peter offers us as we face the hostility of an unbelieving world. Now how are you going to manage your fear this week as you face the opposition of friends and family and colleagues to the gospel? Well Peter says don't fear because Christ is Lord. Be prepared to speak because you and I have a certain hope in the gospel. Do good, because there is value in suffering unjustly for the gospel. And remember, 
Remember the resurrection hope in your baptism through which God nourishes and feeds and strengthens you to face an unbelieving and hostile world. Let's pray. Father, most of us can only begin to imagine what it must be like to face true opposition to the gospel. We think of brothers and sisters around the world, even today, for whom the challenge will be life or death in confessing Christ as Lord. Father, would you give us courage to deal well with even the mild opposition that we face today, this week, that if and when greater opposition comes, we might not fear, but might know that Christ is truly Lord and that we might speak and live for him, confident of the resurrection hope of the gospel. For your name's sake. Amen.